Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's word and turn with me to the gospel of John, John chapter 14. John chapter 14, last week we looked at just verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And last week is, was so important, so foundational for the rest of this upper room discourse. Chapter 14, verse 15 is there because it's defining for whom these promises are given. And these promises are magnificent. Jesus promises a Trinitarian presence in these verses. He's going to say, we will come to you. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit will come to you and will be with you. So the question is, to whom are these promises given? They are given to those that love Jesus. Um, Judas, not Iscariot, is going to be asking that question even today in these verses. He's going to say, why doesn't the world understand this? Why don't they get it? And Jesus is going to answer, because they don't love me. They're not going to get this if they don't love me. So we looked last week very clearly that it's not about commandment keeping. Commandment keeping is easy for those that love Jesus. It's a natural overflow. It's a natural outpouring. So don't stare at commandment keeping. Stare at love. Grow love. Love is the motive and obedience is the action. A true Christian loves Jesus and then because of his love, he will necessarily obey. It's a relationship. This is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's a relationship, a loving relationship. If you love Jesus, you're going to do what he tells you to do because you love him and you want more of him. That's where verse 16 comes into play. The relationship is still there. Jesus is saying, I am leaving, but I still want a relationship with you. You're afraid because I'm leaving and I want you to know that I will still be with you. It's personal. It's a relational text. He doesn't say in these verses, as I'm about to leave, I want to give you more instructions. He says, as I'm about to leave, I want to give you a person. I want to give you a helper. I want to give you the Holy Spirit. Now, John hasn't told us much about the Holy Spirit thus far in the Gospel of John. Really, just four times we've seen the Holy Spirit mentioned. In, verse, in chapter 1, verses 32 to 33, the Spirit is at the baptism of Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 34, God gives the Spirit without measure. He will give the Spirit to anyone who would ask. Uh, in the fullness that he has. In chapter 6, verse 63, the Spirit is the one who gives life. And in chapter 7, verse 39, Jesus says that the Spirit hasn't been given yet because Jesus hasn't been glorified. But when Jesus is glorified, the Spirit will be given. That's it. That's all we've heard from John about the Spirit. But here in chapter 14 through 17, the spotlight is turned on and we see the Spirit clearly. We see the Holy Spirit clearly. Remember, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, the 11 now, because Judas has left. Judas Iscariot has left to uh, enact the betraying that's going to happen. But these words are given to comfort. These words are given to bring hope. These words are given to bring a healing balm in the midst of a very difficult situation. They've been told that they're all going to abandon Jesus Peter's going to deny Jesus. Judas is going to betray Jesus. And Jesus is going to leave and they can't follow. But if we truly grasp the Holy Spirit's ministry as laid out in these verses, we will find calm confidence in the midst of whatever trouble, trouble we're going through. Whatever we are going through, if we can understand the ministry of the triune Godhead, we will have calm confidence in the midst of the trouble that we go through. So let's read these verses together. Let's start in verse 15 and we'll go down to verse 24. John chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will give to you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live. You will live also. And in that day, you will know that I am in my father and you in me and, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. 
And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. But he who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. God, these are overwhelming promises. There there just is no way to fully communicate the, the blessing of these promises. And God, we're going to try. But I pray that your spirit would do exactly what Jesus said he would do. Even in these verses, he would preach the truth to us. I pray that my voice would fade away, that my words would fade away, that they would not be heard in so much as they're my words. I pray that your word would be heard with clarity, such that the hearers of this message would hear a much better message that I, than I preach because the spirit that they have inside of them is clarifying, confirming, affirming, and preaching truth. We need his help. And we thank you that he is our helper, even in these moments. So spirit, thank you that you are here in our midst. You are in our souls. You are working in such a way to point us to Jesus. So do what you love to do. Show us Christ. And may we forever be grateful because of the promises that are made by Jesus himself in these verses. We love him. Help us to love him more because of our time together this morning. We pray in his name. Amen. These verses, we can outline them in just three very clear promises. Number one, the promise of the Spirit. In verses 16 through 17, number two, the promise of the son in verses 18 through 21. And number three, the promise of the father in verses 22 through 24. Trinitarian promises, the promise of the spirit of the son and of the father. Let's first look at the promise of the spirit. Starting in verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. So already we see the Trinity here in this verse, right? I, that's Jesus speaking, I will ask the Father, that's the Father, and he will give you another helper, and that's the Holy Spirit. So already in verse 16, we see the Holy Spirit, we see the Trinity clearly. We see the Holy Spirit, we see the Son, we see the Father. Everyone is involved. In fact, in chapter 15, verse 26, if you go there just a couple pages over in your Bible, chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father. That is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me. So Jesus says in chapter 15, I'm going to send him. And in chapter 14, he says the Father is going to send him. Everybody's involved. This is God doing the work and every member of the Godhead is doing the work. But notice Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father on your behalf. Just write down Luke chapter 11, verse 13. Luke chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus says in his earthly public ministry, He says, if anybody wants the Holy Spirit, they can ask the Father and the Father will give them the Holy Spirit. So ask, ask. If you want the Holy Spirit, ask the Father and he will give you the Holy Spirit. But I love how Jesus doesn't wait around for the disciples to ask. They have not asked yet. And so Jesus here in chapter 14 of John says, you know what? You haven't asked. I'm going to do the asking for you. I'll step in. I'm going to ask for you. What does he ask for specifically? He says, I'm going to ask the Father And he will give you another helper, another helper. The word another in the Greek is very, very specific. There's two words in Greek for another. One is heteros and one is alas. Heteros is another of a different kind, another of a different kind. This is where we get the word heterodox. This is a different gospel. Galatians chapter one, if anybody preaches to you a different Jesus, another Jesus. Your Bibles will say another Jesus, but it's another of a different kind. It's not the same. Allah is another of the exact same kind. So if I had 
if I had a red apple, a, a beautiful, juicy red apple, and I took a bite and I said, this apple is amazing. This is an amazing apple. And I said, can I have another? I want another apple. And you gave me a green apple. Okay? It's, it's another apple, but it's a different kind of apple. It's another, but of a different kind. If you gave me an identical red apple, it's another of the same kind. The word used here, another, is alas. It's another of the exact same kind, meaning this. I'm leaving, Jesus says, and I have been your helper, but I'm going to give you another helper that's exactly like me. This is not a different helper. This is another helper who's exactly like me, another of the exact same kind. And Jesus calls the Holy Spirit the helper. The helper, you know that word, paraclete, uh, parakletos in the Greek, two Greek words put together. Paraclete is two Greek words put together. There's para, which is alongside, parallel, uh, and kletos, which is to call. So a paraclete is somebody who you call to help you to walk alongside you. Somebody who is called upon to walk alongside, to help you. It's a very general word for somebody who comes alongside you. That's why my Bible translates it helper. Sometimes it's translated as comforter, sometimes advocate. Advocate is a very good word. A defender, somebody who's going to take care of you almost in a legal sense. A corrector, an encourager, a comforter. But again, please note, Jesus does not say, I'm going to send you an observer. I want somebody to watch over you. I want somebody to make sure you're doing what you're supposed to do. He says, no, I know you're not going to do what you're supposed to do. So I'm sending you a helper that in the midst of your problems and struggles and troubles, he will help you. Why is he another helper? You can write down 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. He's another helper because Jesus is our first helper. Jesus is our first helper. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, John says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate. A paraclete. We have a helper. Who is that helper? He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, John says. So we already have a helper. The disciples already had a helper. Jesus was their helper. But Jesus is leaving. And so Jesus says, I'm going to give you another helper. I've been alongside you to help you. I've been that person alongside you. And now I'm sending somebody else to be with you. But notice he says, I want him to be with you. End of verse 16. Forever. I'm going to give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That's why in chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I go away. It's good that I leave because the Holy Spirit will help you in a better way than I could. The Holy Spirit will help you in a better way than Jesus beside you could help. Why is that? We've discussed this already. Jesus took upon himself limitations when he became human. He could only be in one place at one time. He took upon that limitation to himself. He couldn't be with everybody at the exact same time, but he says, I'm going to send you another helper, and he will be with you, with all of you, and he will be with you forever. Jesus was going away. He was going to die, and he would ascend to the Father, but the Holy Spirit will be with us forever. So having the helper, having the Holy Spirit is the same as having Jesus because they're identical. They're of the exact same kind, but it's better because we always have access instantly to the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us forever. Jesus had been with his disciples for a short time, but the Holy Spirit would be with them permanently. And not only with them, but inside of them. What Jesus is saying here is who could take the place of God in human flesh. Who could do that? And he says it's God in spirit. God in human flesh will be replaced here by God the spirit. Somebody who is always with them. Jesus loves his men. Jesus loves his disciples. And he, as he says, I'm going to leave. He says, I want somebody to care for you. Who could take his place? He wants somebody to care for them in the best possible way. Jesus calls his disciples little children. If you've ever dropped your kid off at a nursery or a daycare or something, you want to know who's taking care of your kid. 
I, I take care of my children and I try to do a really good job at that. And, and I want to make sure that somebody else is going to be a good steward of my child and take care of them. That's what Jesus is saying. I have to leave and I'm leaving my children with somebody. And it's not an angel. It's not a pastor. It's not a priest. It's not a pope. It's the Holy Spirit. He promises God the Holy Spirit. And he defines for us who this Holy Spirit is. Verse 17, he is the spirit of truth. He's the spirit of truth. Turn to chapter 16. We're going to learn a lot about the Holy Spirit over our um, couple months in the Upper Room Discourse. But in chapter 16, starting in verse 12, Jesus says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. He won't speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. We're going to get into this in a couple months, but I believe that that's the writing down of the scriptures, the, the inspiration of the, of the Holy Spirit working in the disciples to write Holy Scripture. What's he going to do? He's going to glorify me, verse 14, for he will take of mine and disclose to you. We get the disclosing of Jesus to us as we're going to see in chapter 14 and all the things that the father has are mine therefore i said to you that he takes of mine and discloses it to you he's the spirit of truth he is going to show you christ the role of the holy spirit is primarily to glorify jesus primarily to glorify christ to disclose the beauty the glory and the truth of who jesus is he brings truth to our hearts specifically about the person and work of Jesus. Let me give you a few verses. You can write them down. For sake of time, we're not going to turn to these. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6, John says that the Spirit is the Spirit of truth. He is truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16 says that because we have the Spirit, we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ disclosed to us through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, the whole passage, we see the doctrine of illumination, that he's going to illuminate our understanding. He does not do that to the world. He doesn't do that to a lost world around who does not perceive or understand or see. But the Holy Spirit's the one who turns on the light in the human mind to see, in the human soul, to understand divine truth. One last verse is 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and verse 27. 1 John 2, verse 20 and verse 27. The phrase is used, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That can be taken out of context. In context, it's clear what the anointing is, is just a disclosing of the truth of who Jesus is and his work on our behalf to us. Anointing is not something mystical or magical. The anointing of the Spirit is what every believer receives when they receive the truth of God's word. So the Holy Spirit will sound identical to Jesus. Jim Boyce says it this way, the Holy Spirit's not going to speak of himself, but he's going to speak of Jesus. Therefore, we may conclude that any emphasis upon the work and person of the Spirit that detracts from the person and work of Jesus is not the Spirit's doing. He's the Spirit of truth, Jesus says in verse 17. He's going to speak the truth of Jesus to our hearts, to our souls. And the world won't understand that. Verse 17, he's the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Again, I would refer you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. The world cannot understand the supernatural unless the Holy Spirit opens their eyes to see the supernatural. So, of course, the world doesn't receive the Spirit. The world had the Spirit through Jesus for three and a half years. And what did they do? They're going to kill Jesus, and they blaspheme the Spirit. Do you remember when Jesus is doing miracles, and the crowd says those miracles that he is doing, those are prophesied, those are insanely messianic miracles. It's obvious this guy's the Messiah. Pharisees, what should we do with this man? And the Pharisees say, well, he's doing those miracles by the power of the devil. And Jesus does not say, hey, 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 you've blasphemed me because I did those miracles. He says, you've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's obviously doing those works in and through me. I have taken upon limitations of humanity. I'm not doing those miracles. The Holy Spirit's doing those miracles through me, and you've blasphemed him. So, of course, the world cannot receive him. They did not know him. They didn't see him. They didn't understand him. The world will not respond. In fact, later in chapter 
16, Jesus is going to say, not only will they not see or respond to the Spirit, they are going to reject him and hate you because of him. So the world can't receive. The unregenerate mind does not understand the mysteries of God's purpose in life. The indwelling Spirit brings the believer comprehension and comfort in those troubling times. So the disciples know him, and that's why Jesus says, you know him. The world's not going to get him. They don't understand him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. He abides with you. He's around you. He's in Jesus, and Jesus has been with the disciples, so that's why Jesus says, hey, he's been with you this whole time. You know this guy. This is not going to be some foreign person to your knowledge. I'm not introducing you to the Holy Spirit. You know the Holy Spirit. He's inside of me, and he's been with you for three and a half years. But it's going to move here. This beautiful promise. The Spirit's going to move from being with them in Jesus to being in them personally at the day of Pentecost. So, to sum all of these verses up about the Holy Spirit, if we know the Holy Spirit and we are dependent upon Him, then all the promises that Jesus says, and specifically doing the greater works that Jesus told us we are going to do, those things will come true. Knowledge of the Holy Spirit and dependence upon him are necessary conditions of doing those greater things. And they are necessary conditions of finding the greatest comfort. You struggle to be at peace in your heart? Do you find more often than not there's a war, there's turmoil in your heart? If you're a believer, my encouragement would be to you this morning, maybe you're not giving the Holy Spirit enough credit. You're not allowing what the Holy Spirit has promised to happen in your heart to happen, to comfort you. But here's what I want to say. I I don't really blame believers for not understanding what the Holy Spirit's doing. There's a lot of confusion about the Holy Spirit today. Even in evangelical circles, he's all over the map. J.I. Packer says, Christian people are not in doubt as to the work that Christ did. They know that he redeemed men by his atoning death, even as they differ among themselves as to what exactly that involved. But the average Christian is in a complete fog as to what work the Holy Spirit does. They are, for practical purposes, in the same position as the disciples whom Paul met at Ephesus when they said to him in Acts chapter 9, verse 2, we have not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? What is his job? What is his ministry? There's so much that can be said about this. I just want to say two things. Number one, and they clearly come from this text. Number one, the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit's a person. He's not an it. He's a he. He's not a force or a power. He's a he. He's a person. R.A. Torrey says it this way. The conception of the Holy Spirit as a divine influence or divine power that we somehow get a hold of and use leads to self-exaltation and to self-sufficiency. If I gain the Holy Spirit, I use the Holy Spirit, I do the work, and I'm using the Holy Spirit. But if we grasp the Holy Spirit... If we grasp the thought that the Holy Spirit is a divine person of infinite majesty, glory, holiness, and power, who in marvelous condescension has come into our hearts to make his home there and take possession of our lives and make use of them, it will put us in the dust and keep us in the dust. I can think of no thought more humbling or more overwhelming than the thought that a person of divine majesty and glory dwells in my heart and is ready to use even me. So often, again, in evangelical circles, the Holy Spirit is considered, for all practical intents and purposes, an it, a force, a power. Here's how we, we understand our, our, our verbiage, our, our words betray our understanding of the Holy Spirit. When we say things, sometimes we sing things, such as, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? I just want more of the Holy Spirit. We want more of the Holy Spirit. Wait, wait, wait. If he's a person, you're not asking for more of him. You're asking to give more of your will and surrender to his control. 
But if we say, oh, we just want more, we want more, we want more. No, no, if you have been given the Holy Spirit, there's not more of him than you can get than you already have because you've been given the fullness of the Spirit. So we betray our understanding, or I guess lack thereof, of the Holy Spirit when we ask, God, give me more. He's not a force. He's not a power. He's a person. So instead of saying, how can I get more of the Holy Spirit? Just give me more. We should be saying, how can I surrender myself to his control? He's inside me. And I fight against it. And if I'm fighting against him, I want to give more of myself. I want to give all of who I am, my will completely surrendered in every aspect, submitting to him. So the reality is, if the Holy Spirit were just a power, then what Jesus would be saying is, look, I'm a person and I've been with you. I have to leave, but I'm going to try and make up for it by some force, by some power that's going to weave in and out of you. But if the Holy Spirit were a thing, he would not be able to have divine knowledge to know of every distress that the disciples were experiencing. He's a person. He knows. He's not a force that you feel. He's a person. And if he's not a person, then he doesn't have divine knowledge and he can't know of every distress that you're going through. If he's not a person, then he doesn't have feelings. The Holy Spirit feels. You can quench, you can stiff-arm the Holy Spirit, you can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit feels, and because he has feelings, he can identify with your feelings. He knows what it's like to be sorrowful. He knows what it's like to be sad. He knows what it's like to be in distress. He knows what it's like to be comforted. So we have to have the Holy Spirit being a person in order to have those feelings. Finally, he must be a person in order to have a will to carry out the orders that he's been given by Jesus and by the Father. He's been ordered by the Father through Jesus to be our helper, to give us compassion, to be a ministry to us. If he's just a force, then he's moving at our beckoning. He's moving according to our will. But he's not a force, he's a person. So number one, clearly in the scriptures, even in these verses, I will ask the Father and he will give you a helper that he, that helper, may be with you. Not it. I'm going to give you a helper and it's going to hang out with you. And it's going to work through you. The Holy Spirit is a he. Number two, the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God, very God. Again, we could spend all of our time on this, but just three very clear ways that we know the Holy Spirit is God. Number one, divine attributes that are given to God the Father and God the Son are given to the Holy Spirit. Divine attributes are ascribed to the Spirit. He is called holy, he is called omniscient, he is called omnipotent, and he is called omnipresent. Only God is holy, omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. Therefore, if the Holy Spirit is all of those things, the Holy Spirit is God. Number two, divine works are ascribed to the Spirit. The creation of the world, the writing of the Bible, and many, many others. But I think the best place to go is Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 is the clearest place. This is where I go with any cult members that would show up at my door and claim that the Holy Spirit is a force and not God. They deny the Trinity. I go to Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira lie um, about the, the money that they received from the property that they sold. And Peter says to Ananias, um, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. And he says, if you had kept your property, then you would have been fine. You sold your property, and then you lied about the money you made. So you have not lied to man. You've lied to God. This is Acts chapter 5, verses 3 through 4. You lied to the Holy Spirit. If you had kept your property, you would have been fine. But when you sold it, you gave money, and you lied about the money. So you didn't lie to man. I'm not offended at this. You lied to God. So if Peter says, you lied to the Spirit, and then he says, you lied to God, then the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is a person, and the Holy Spirit is God. Now, this is where theology is so important. I don't want this to be impractical. I don't want to just be giving you ammunition to win a debate or an argument. That's pointless. Again, Jesus is telling the disciples that the Holy Spirit is a person and is God to comfort them. Why? Why is this so comforting? One of the most devastating thoughts anyone can ever have when they're going through trouble is I'm alone. 
I don't know if you've been there, where you just feel alone. These verses are given to the disciples. They're written to say, oh, you're never going to be alone. And it's not a force that's going to be with you. It's not a power that's going to be with you. God, very God, will be in you. And you'll never be alone. I don't know if you've been in those moments where you feel all alone. You can ask my wife. One of the most poignant moments in her life was when Monday morning uh, we found out that, not this Monday morning, Monday morning almost a year ago, we found out that our son was sick. We didn't know what he was sick with. And, and uh, when we took him to the hospital, me being very, very ignorant and just an idiot, <laughs> I thought, eh, I'm so anti-alarmist. Uh, he'll be fine. Just, he'll be okay. Just a, an infection or something. And so I went to work, and I got a call from my wife that he had been moved um, to the NICU and he was going to have to be flown out to Children's Hospital for open heart surgery and I I didn't know what to say I said I'm so sorry I'm not there and I, I, I definitely think I broke the law driving there I went way way too fast to get there but when I talked with my wife one of the things that she told me was there was a moment when she was told by the doctor, this is what your son has. He needs to have open heart surgery. And nobody was with my wife. It was my wife and the doctor. I wasn't there. Her dad wasn't there yet. Nobody was there. And in that moment of feeling very, very alone, with the possibility of losing our son, my wife can tell you that she experienced a peace that you cannot even fully describe a peace that I'm not alone and that God will work this out and he's in control. Why? What, what is that peace coming from? It wasn't from me. It wasn't from the doctor. It wasn't from her dad. Though my wife was very, very much alone, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, spoke to her heart and gave her a peace. I don't believe that the Holy Spirit spoke with words. But the Holy Spirit has been promised to be helper. And to point us to peace in Christ. That's exactly what he did. With my wife. That's what he's done with me. That's what he's done with many of you. I know that. And that's all because of this promise. That the Holy Spirit is a person. And he is God. And he will be in you forever. That is the Holy Spirit. That's the promise of the Holy Spirit. Let's quickly go through the, the next two points. The promise of the Son. We have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have the promise of the Son. Verse 18. Jesus says himself, I am not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He has just said a couple of verses before, I'm leaving. But then he says, I'm going to come back and I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to adopt you. What do orphans lack? Whatever orphans lack, Jesus says, I will provide for you. I will come back to you. I'm not leaving you for good, you guys. That's what he's saying. I'm coming back. Now, when is he going to come back? At the resurrection? Yes, for sure. At the sending of the Spirit? Yes, for sure. At the second coming? Absolutely. Is it one specific place? F.F. Bruce lands by saying every phase of his promise coming is embraced in this assurance, I'm coming to you. So it's not so much when, it's that he is coming. He's not leaving them. Probably he's saying nearer than farther. I don't think that he's looking to the second coming. I think he's looking to the resurrection and then the sending of the spirit. But he says, I'm going to come to you and I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to adopt you. You're going to be mine. You're my children forever. We are sons and daughters because of this promise. J.A. Packer, again, in uh, Knowing God, says this. You sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase, if you speak of it as the revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's holy father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. 
If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to adopt you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to bring you to myself. Verse 19, after a little while, the world will no longer see me because I'm going to die. But you're going to see me because I'm going to live. And you're going to live too. This is the promise of the resurrection in Jesus Christ. In verse 20, in that day, again, there's a question, what day? Is it the day of the resurrection? Is it the, the day of uh, the second coming? I, I believe it's probably the ascension and then the giving of the Spirit. Uh, when Jesus is glorified, um, John chapter 7, verse 39, that's what Jesus says. When I'm glorified, then the Spirit will come. And when the Spirit comes, he'll disclose all this to you. So I think in that day is, is probably the ascension and uh, Pentecost when the Spirit's going to come. But in that day, you will know that I am in, the, in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In that day, not only will the Holy Spirit tell you that and teach you that, but you'll see me go up to heaven. I've been telling you this whole time that I came from heaven, and maybe that's a little bit difficult to believe because you knew people who knew me as a little baby, as a little infant. You've been struggling to believe that I am God, very God, but you'll get it when you see me ascending into heaven. First of all, I'm going to die. Then I'm going to be raised from the dead. Then I'm going to hang out with you for uh, a couple days, and then I'm going to go back up. And when I go up to heaven, you are going to see that I'm going back home to where I came from. I am God, very God. You're going to know that. You're going to know that what I've spoken to you is true. I am in the Father. My Father's in me, and you will be in me as well. Therefore, you will be in the Father, and the Father will be in you. These are profound promises. But in that day, the disciples will come to understand the relationship Jesus has with the Father and how they've been included in that relationship. The Spirit will make real to them the love that they have in the Father and the Son. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and I will disclose myself to him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. A.W. Pink says the manifestation of Christ is made, the disclosing of Jesus. You want that relationship with him? You want him to continue to disclose himself to you? A.W. Pink says the manifestation, the disclosing of Jesus is made only to the one who really loves him. And the proof of that love to him is not by emotional displays, but by submission to his will. There's a vast difference between sentiment and practical reality. The Lord will give no direct and special revelation of himself to those who are in the path of disobedience. Keeping his commands is the real test. We can hear, but do we heed? We know, but are we doing his will? Jesus says, I'm going to come to you. If you love me, I'm going to keep giving you more of myself. And in a beautiful way, though I am gone, I'm sending the Spirit such that he will disclose everything there is to know about me. Full revelation of Jesus. So we have the promise of the Spirit, we have the promise of the Son, and we have the promise of the Father. Number three, Judas, not Iscariot, verse 22, said to Jesus, Lord, what then has happened that you're not going to disclose yourself to the world? You're only disclosing yourself to us. Why? I thought the mission was to the world. I thought you were trying to get the world to follow you. Why only us now? It's a valid question. I think he's asking this question because he's still choking on the idea that Messiah is not going to be king and bring everybody in under his rule. He's supposed to be the savior of the world and bring the kingdom now, and they were going to rule and reign with him. So he's saying, it's clear, Jesus, that you've changed from let's go out to the world to I'm just talking to you. Why aren't you disclosing yourself to the world? Jesus gives a very weird answer. It just doesn't seem like it answers the question. He doesn't say, well, Judas, good question. Here's why. But if we understand what Jesus said in verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, then this answer makes total sense. Judas is asking, why aren't you giving yourself to the world? Why aren't you giving who you are and disclosing knowledge of who you are to the world? Let them see you. Let them know you. And Jesus' answer, in effect, is they don't love me. They don't love me. And if you don't love me, you're not getting more of me. 
The commandments, remember from last week, the commandments, most of the commandments in the Bible are not do this. They're not ethical, moral commands that Jesus is giving. If you love me, you will keep my commands. You'll keep the commands to receive me, to know me, to press into me, to, to believe me, to receive me as your greatest treasure. So here, verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. So why am I not disclosing myself to the world? Because they don't love me. They don't want more of me. They don't want more revelation. They don't want more understanding. They don't want more teaching. They just want me dead. But the one who loves me, I will give my spirit to that one, and not just my spirit, Notice what he says. My father will love him and we will come to him and we will make our abode with him. That word abode, the only other time it's used in the Gospel of John is chapter 14, verse 2. In my father's house are many dwelling places. Dwelling places is the same Greek word that's translated here, abode. Permanent residence. So Judas, I'm not disclosing myself to the world because they don't want me. I've given of myself to them. They don't want me. That's why he says in verse 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus says, I'm going to ask the Father. He'll send you the Spirit. I'm also going to be with you. I'm not leaving you for good. I'm coming to get you. And my Father will love you and will come to you and we all Verse 23, we'll make our abode with him. This is one of the best promises in the entire Bible. We will make our abode with him. God will be with us and make his home with us here. This is a taste of heaven. This is why we're going to love heaven when we get to heaven, because we're already experiencing it here on earth. We're experiencing the presence of God here, and heaven is the fullness of that. It's the glorification of that. The opposite is true for hell. John Piper says, God rejectors might be just as miserable in heaven as they are in hell. Hell is just getting what you've always wanted. If you hate God, why would you want to be in heaven with God where you're glorifying, praising, and enjoying God? That's why we are going to enjoy heaven because we get God in the fullness of who God is in glorification with no sin that's blocking our vision of him. Sinners who do not repent, do not see Jesus as beautiful, do not glorify him, do not want him, they get what they have been wanting all along. Hell is a place where they can finally be rid of every aspect of who God is except for God's justice. That's why C.S. Lewis says so well, the doors of hell are locked on the inside. The doors of hell are locked on the inside. John chapter 3, verse 19, men love the darkness rather than the light. You could ask somebody in hell, do you want to get out of here? First they would say, I know I can't. Um, Rich man and Lazarus, I, I know I can't. Secondly, they would say, where are you offering for me to go? If you say, well, the only other option in the eternal state is heaven to be with God forever, they'd say, no, I don't want him. I don't want him. Hell is not purgatory where you burn off your bad works to get God. It's, it's punishment. It's punitive. It's, it's never-ending punishment. Nobody in hell is getting better. That's why Jesus says the world doesn't want me, and they're not getting more of me. I've been with them for three and a half years. They've seen me. They've seen my teaching, and they're rejecting it. That's it. I'm done. But these verses are a precious promise to believers. These verses tell us that we should be experiencing a preview of heaven on earth. We should be. God is going to make his abode with us. And we now currently possess the full down payment of what the experience of heaven will be like. We have currently the triune God abiding with us. So to summarize, the promise of the Spirit, the promise of the Son, the promise of the Father. Jesus says, I'm going to send the Spirit, then I'm going to come, then the Father will come. We will all be with you and we will all be in you. Therefore, we are the temple of the living God. That's, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are the temple of the living God. How do we wrap this up? I, I want to go through all of these promises, and then I just want to make a couple points of application. 
Let's just summarize all these promises. Listen to the blessings that are inherent in these promises. Verse 16, I'm going to give you another helper. He's exactly like me, but he's another helper, and he is going to be the, the spirit of truth. Verse 17, he's going to lead you in truth. You're not going to be led astray. You're worried that I've been the master for so long, and as I leave, you're not going to have a place where, or a person where he can lead you and guide you. You don't know where to go. No, he's going to lead you in truth. Verse 18, by the way, I'm coming back to you, and I'm going to adopt you. I'm not leaving you as orphans. Verse 19, I'm going to live again, and you will live again. I'm not going to stay dead. Verse 20, you have the assurance that I am God, that I and the Father are one, and that we are bound together forever, and because of that, you and and us are bound together in an inseparable way. We are never going to be separated. In verse 21, we have a familial relationship where I'm going to tell you everything. I'm going to be with you forever. I'm not keeping secrets from you. I'm going to disclose myself to you. Verse 23, we are going to come and all three of us will make our home with you now. So the sum of all the promises is Jesus saying, the Father, the Holy Spirit, and I will be with you forever and we will never forsake you no matter where you are, ever. The guarantee in these verses is that we have the full presence of the triune God. You never will be separated from God. We don't need to conjure up his presence or ask for a greater manifestation of his presence. He's always with us. So how do we conclude? What is the application? I think that it's clearly what we sung about. Praise the triune God. Praise the Father. Praise the Son. Praise the Holy Spirit, the three in one. So Father, praise the Father because he did not spare his only Son. He was separated from his Son willingly so that you would never be separated from his Son, ever. Praise the Son. Everything that you've ever wanted is ultimately fulfilled in a right relationship with Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm going to disclose everything that I am to you. And praise the Holy Spirit. Poor Holy Spirit, sometimes in Bible-believing circles, just never gets recognition. We need to praise God, the Holy Spirit. Why? Three reasons will be done. Number one, we praise the Holy Spirit because he points us to Christ. He wrote a whole book about Jesus. If we acknowledge the authority of the Bible in our lives, we are praising God for his spirit. So thank the Holy Spirit for writing this book. Number two, thank the Holy Spirit for purification. First Corinthians 6, we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. We're not our own. What Paul says to the Corinthian church and to us is, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And this is a powerful reality that should always be a purifying reality. If you understand that the Godhead lives inside of you, this should be a purifying reality. So praise God. Praise God the Holy Spirit for purification, for helping you in fighting sin, for helping you to love Jesus. And finally, praise him for his presence. Praise him for pointing us to Christ. Praise him for purification and praise him for his presence. We can, we should know the presence of the Holy Spirit within us. We need to develop an awareness of his presence. This, this gets fuzzy, but let's just, let's be honest. The Holy Spirit offers us feelings. If you feel convicted of your sin, that's a feeling, and that's a, it's a feeling that was given to you by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working in your life to develop a, an awareness of a hatred for sin and a love for Jesus. So if you feel convicted, you should thank the Holy Spirit for doing that work in you. The Spirit of truth has told you sin is bad. It leads to death. It offends a holy God. How can you walk in it since you have been crucified with Christ? The Spirit of truth is doing that. I personally don't believe he's going to talk to you audibly. He's never done that for me. But he moves. He gives comfort. Comfort's a feeling. He gives conviction. Sometimes I, I think that we just, when we're in the midst of something difficult, we just turn to somebody externally to help us instead of realizing God sent us a helper. He gave us a helper. So ask the Spirit to work in you, to move, to, to point you, to direct you, to guide you. Be led by the Spirit. Again, that deserves its own sermon. But the reality is all of this, the Spirit pointing us to Jesus, the Spirit purifying our hearts, and the Spirit's presence in our lives, 
leads to us. This is where I believe Jesus is going. We have nothing to fear. We have all comfort. There, there should be nothing that can trouble us. We can't be troubled about our salvation. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the deposit that seals us for eternal life. We have assurance if he began the good work in us, he's going to complete it. No reason to be troubled about our salvation. Growth, the Spirit's got that figured out. He's working in your heart, and he's going to work to sanctify and purify you. Should you be troubled about your growth in the Lord? No, you should work, you should strive, but all of your striving is being used by the Spirit, and the good works that we've been prepared beforehand to walk in, are going to be, we're going to be led through those by the Holy Spirit. He's our protector. He's our comforter. He's our helper. So there should be nothing that will trouble us ever. Because we have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit residing in us and making their home with us. Unbelievable promises, but they are promises that are only given to believers. If you love him, you will keep his commandments and all these promises are true for you. The question is, do you love him? The Bible says that nobody can say that Jesus is Lord, but by the Spirit doing that work. So if you're here this morning and the Spirit has done that work to give you the new birth, to open your eyes, to see Jesus as supremely valuable and to treasure him above all things, then we get to remember how that work began, how that was even possible. That's why we take this memorial of the Lord's Supper, to remember his death and his resurrection until he comes again. If you're here this morning and you're struggling with sin, and it's something that you want to give up today and you want to confess, these elements are for you. These elements are for you to say, I remember the, the applied work of Jesus Christ to cleanse me from my sin, and I'm going to walk in righteousness with the help of the Spirit. If you're here this morning and you claim to know Jesus, but you are not going to give up your sin, you do not want to walk in righteousness, these elements are not for you. Let them pass, and I would encourage you to talk with one of us after the service to figure out what is it that, that seems better to walk in sin than to walk in righteousness with Jesus. And finally, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior at all, you wonder why is it an amazing thing that God promises to be in us? What's that all about? Just let these elements pass. These are for believers. But I encourage you, please don't leave today until you know why the experience of the Holy Spirit in us is something to sing about and to praise God for. Father, I pray as we prepare our hearts for communion that you would do a work in us, that you would help us even as we sing to, um, to think of the blessings that we have in Jesus and let sin grow ugly, despised, and hated in our hearts yet again. May we understand and know and be aware of the presence of the Spirit even now as he convicts us of sin and leads us back to the cross where we find forgiveness, we find pardon, we find mercy. And may we be unified around that mercy, humbled to the dust, because you have given us such grace. God, I pray that you would prepare our hearts to partake of communion as we sing, as we thank you and praise you, Holy Spirit, for working in us and not leaving us alone. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.